Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello, hello, and welcome back from your weekends. You might have heard me say this before the news, but one of the things we like to do on Mondays is to bring you up to date on the medical science, the epidemiology, the virology behind the COVID-19 pandemic. But increasingly, and you may notice a slight tinge of annoyance in my voice, increasingly we spend these times, and, and Monday seems to be a particularly apt time to have to do this. We spend these these intervals, well, a lot of them anyway, just knocking down really stupid ideas that are being circulated often by the president himself in the form of retweets or members of the Trump administration all being dropped into the gaping, hungry, baby robin-like mouths of people who want to dismiss the medical science and therefore the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic itself. So we're going to wind up doing that today. I'm really sorry. I hope we'll have time for other things uh, in our epidemiology segment here. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to old friend, and I believe a guest on the first episode of the Colin McEnroe Show ever, some 11 years ago today, I think, uh, Gail Collins from the New York Times. Anyway, we got to get going here uh, because, in fact, we, we do have a whole bunch of things that we have to kind of debunk and, and also worry about. And here to debunk, worry, and inform is Saskia Popescu, uh, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Arizona. She's been with us before, and uh, she is here today. Uh, Saskia, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, yeah, it turns out, like, I think it's like over the weekend, a lot of this stuff kind of spreads around. Um, so I don't know, maybe let, let's, I don't know which thing is the most upsetting, but I'll just go through a lot of them. And <laughs> you can, you can decide you're the epidemiologist. All right. Here is uh, the president's new, newest medical advisor, part of his, uh, pandemic response team, Scott Atlas. We should point out because one of the things we might be talking about in general today is that Scott Atlas is neither a virologist or an epidemiologist or Scott Atlas for the purposes of this conversation is somebody who made it through med school, but not in any of these fields related to the crisis. Anyway, here he is talking about a way to get rid of this threat. Even though we don't know everything about this specific virus, we have decades of knowledge about immunology and virology and even this family of viruses. By doing total isolation and continuing it, we are preventing the development of population-based immunity, which is the most immediately available way to get rid of this threat. All right. So um, he's right at the beginning where he says there's a lot of information that is available to medical science from previous coronavirus uh uh, infections from from other kinds of comparable viruses. But he kind of goes off the rails from there. And Saskia, it sounds like he's kind of advocating, you know, the Sweden model, which is letting this thing rip uh, until it kind of stabilizes. Maybe as an epidemiologist, you could critique that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's very worrisome for multiple reasons. The first is that 
even if we have a lot of data right now, we still have a long ways to go to better understand this virus and transmission dynamics. We are literally building the bridges we walk across it. So having that kind of false sense of security and confidence is very worrisome. But advocating for something like herd immunity, which is pretty much what he's saying, is entirely wrong and extremely dangerous. For one, we look at herd immunity and vaccine preventable diseases. And the second piece is that if you're going to push herd immunity, then you're basically saying you're accepting a lot of people are going to lose their lives in the process. And that's simply not an acceptable approach to this. I think pretty much every public health and infectious disease expert has come out and said, we cannot be pushing this narrative. It's dangerous and it's just frankly wrong. And it's very distressing to hear someone in the White House be pushing this. Yeah, I think it's important to say that, you know, and, and there there are, first of all, conversations that can be had and, and have been had about how many how many exposures, how many infections you'd have to get to to achieve herd immunity. But let's say you decided that if you let the virus rip through the U.S. half of the U.S. population uh, with the goal of achieving herd immunity. Well, if we're if the death rates from infection is 1% or 0.5, but let's say it's 1%, that's more than 1.5 million people dying. Uh, that's the kind of, you know, huge number that you'd be willing to live with to get to, to herd immunity, right? Exactly. And, and that's been really the concern from the very beginning, because to truly achieve herd immunity, you you're going to have to accept that millions of people will die. And that's not something we should ever be accepting, especially in a situation where so many of these deaths have already been proven to be very preventable if we adequately respond to this pandemic. And unfortunately, we're just seeing time and time again that this administration is not wanting to accept um, a, a, anything less than a quick fix, which is not how we approach infectious diseases. Well, the other thing that I think is missing here from this line of reasoning and from Scott Atlas's comments is how little we know so far about the 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 the, diff, the degrees of immunity conferred by the disease when it's kind of you know caught in the wild as opposed to the result of some kind of standardized immunization program. So you know, I mean, first of all, it's too early to have numbers much more than ninety days out from infection. How's your immunity doing? Uh, there seems to be you know, it seems like everybody's zero positive who um, who or everybody zero converts right who gets infected, but we don't know beyond that whether whether there's a strong memory, uh, whether in fact the immunity weakens over time, whether that weakening is more prevalent in people who are asymptomatic or had extremely mild cases than those who had you know more more standard presentations of the disease with you know pretty harsh symptoms but maybe not enough to put you in the hospital. I mean, there's a good chance anyway, that immunity from from exposure, from infection is going to come in different sizes and flavors. So how could you apply that over the whole population, not knowing how long any one person's immunity would last? Exactly. And, you know, that really plays into conversations we're having more and more about reinfection. So when we look at antibody titers, for many of these people, they're low. And we're seeing that titers really correlate to disease severity. But the problem is, you know, we're still learning so much more about reinfection and immunity and how long it lasts. And we, we need more epidemiological evidence about this and not just about reinfection, but, you know, viral shedding. Because as we had conversations over the past week, really about PCR tests, I'm sure you saw all over the place, mm -hmm. you know, if these are too sensitive and we really need to be discussing more thresholds in terms of how we're testing people and if that means they need isolation. I think it's really safe to say that while we've made great progress in understanding more about this disease and 
but we still have so much more to do. So we need to be very mindful of that when we're making national decisions. Yeah. Um, so uh, as long as we're sort of knocking down certain ideas here, I mean, it's really like amazing how many of them can pop up uh, in the course of 24 to 48 hours. So another one is the 6% idea. This is a notion that uh, I think also was retweeted by President Trump and then Twitter took it down because it was misleading. This is the argument. It's not based on nothing. It's based on a misinterpretation of a set of data. The argument that only 6% or so of the deaths from COVID are pure COVID deaths, and, and therefore COVID is nowhere near as serious a disease as it is being portrayed as. I think that's sort of the way it's misstated. Maybe we should try to explain what the reality is. Yeah, really what you're seeing is CDC data saying for 6% of deaths, COVID was the only cause of death. And the, the challenge in this is that it's not only misinterpreting data, but it's really not understanding how we um, explain and chart and, you know, collect data on mortality in general. So, you know, most most physicians, and I think they've really come out, thankfully, on Twitter saying it's very rare to put a single cause of death. So the truth is, you know, this argument is saying, well, only 6% of people are truly dying of COVID. But the issue is a lot of other people have these comorbidities or, co you know, coexisting issues that are relating to and causing death. And the misinterpretation is not acknowledging, essentially, that if it wasn't for COVID, though, those people would would still be alive. You know, having COVID-19, that infection is what triggered all of these issues. So it's like saying, you know, if you have diabetes and you got COVID-19 and had severe illness and, and died, you know, you would have diabetes also on your death certificate. So that's really the frustrating piece about with that tweet and, you know, why President Trump ran with it, because it's really not understanding the data and how we understand and log death, because it's very rare to see just one single cause of it. There's always a lot of um, issues that relate to and cause death in people. Yeah, I mean, a couple of other things maybe worth mentioning. One of the things that might be listed that way would be obesity. Well, that person <laughs> was unlikely to die of obesity on the day that he or she died uh, from COVID-related obesity because until you, as you say, uh, every, every, all of the 180,000 or however many people there are, if there's 180,000 of them, all of them died sooner than they would have otherwise had COVID not entered their lives. And the other thing is, in some cases, the COVID is just so ruthlessly beating up people's bodies and triggering these kind of downstream, you know, renal failures and heart issues and stuff like that, that, I mean, that's another way you're going to see other than quote unquote, pure COVID as a cause of death is that COVID actually acts sort of seeks out in your body some organ in some cases anyway, to, to beat up on. Exactly. And I think it really does such a disservice, not only to, you know, the people that have lost their lives that are currently battling COVID, but the the struggles that we have medically for treating these patients, because they do, they're very sick. You know, I see these patients every single day and many of them are, are young, healthy people until they get COVID and they come in and then they have all of these other issues going on because the disease is so severe on their body. And promoting that notion that only 6% of people truly die from COVID is just, it's so factually inaccurate. And it does more to normalize that this isn't a severe issue and that you know, we've got a handle on it in the U.S., which is just simply not the case and a very dangerous narrative. 
Okay, what else can we worry about? Well, actually, I didn't even know that I should worry about this until you tweeted about it just a little while ago. That I, I did read a long, complicated Wall Street Journal article about the logistics of rolling out any kind of mass vaccine program. Just how much stuff, once, once you got it, were able to scale up and make the stuff, how much stuff would have to be shipped to so many places and held in you know ref, high refrigeration uh, states in, in most cases and all kinds of stuff like that. But you're tweeting also that hospitals, uh, in terms of distribution sites, they might be sort of the, the last stage of that distribution chain, and they're being told to get ready to do this thing that they typically don't do? Well, we do often see when it comes to planning for mass vaccination efforts, hospitals are often distribution sites, so that's not totally uncommon. But I think the concerning piece is that for those of us in healthcare, we're being told by our state health departments, and you know, I'm hearing about this from not only the state I'm in, but also others, that we should anticipate being a distribution site and for a November 1st rollout. So in the next few weeks to really be planning and getting your, your processes in place, which is very worrisome because it's hard not to see that political pressure in this. You know, suddenly we have a vaccine that many pharmaceutical companies have come out and said, you know, we're not going to bypass phase three. We're not going to speed this up for a political, you know, emphasis. Um, We have to take all safety precautions in this. And I think this push and the timing really is so dangerous, is so concerning from a public health perspective that it's, it's, it was even more shocking to me to be hearing this, that, you know, we should be getting ready for this. And it's likely going to start with distribution and healthcare workers, but, you know, pushing a vaccine out before we've gone through every single safety mechanism, especially in a pandemic is just so scary and frankly, poor public health. All right. So we have to spend a little bit of time talking about testing because this is now just something I do on my Mondays is have conversations <laughs> with people about testing. And there's some, well, I'm, I don't know, maybe we should start with the fact that the CDC put out some guidelines, which they later kind of hokey pokeyed back, um, or, or sort of changes in guidelines. I, I don't know, maybe it would be best if you sort of uh, gave us your take on, on what's going on here. Yeah. So last week, the CDC updated some recommendations that were basically saying, if you have been exposed, you really don't need to get tested unless you're at risk or you live with someone at risk for severe disease. And I think what's so scary about that is it really sends mixed messages because we've always been saying you should get tested. If you are worried or you've been exposed, go get tested. We want you to have access to testing. But the concerning piece to this is that, A, it's hard not to see you know, a political narrative in that because the the president has been very emphasizing that we're testing too much. But, you know, we, I, I think better communication is saying, hey, if you've been exposed, obviously we want you to get tested, but just know that testing is one moment in time. So right. if I was exposed today, a lot of people, the visceral response is I want to go get tested immediately. But we want to make sure that if I went and got tested three or four days from now, I know that that might be too early. So even if I test negative, you know, during the 14-day incubation period, I st- I'm, I still need to be in quarantine. And I think that was causing some confusion. So I, my gut says that that's what they were really trying to convey is that even if you test negative within the 14-day incubation period while you're supposed to be quarantining, you still need to write out that 14 days. Unfortunately, though, this gave very concerning recommendations and, again, mixed messages that many people in public health and healthcare were just very concerned that this was saying, you shouldn't be tested. And that's really not what we want. We want more testing. 
Right. I, I, that's sort of where I came down ultimately that, that Redfield and the CDC were trying, what they were trying to say, I think was, okay, so you went to a party on Friday night and now you found out on Sunday morning that there's somebody at that party that you talked to, you know, uh, at some length who uh, does have COVID-19. Should you try to get tested on Sunday or Monday? I mean, there's sort of a natural inclination to do that. But, you know, there's some variation in the disease in terms of how it ramps up, what's it, what its incubation period is, when you're going to be P- PCR positive, when you're going to be infectious. There's a little bit of confusion around that. So the idea that you go and get one PR, PCR test, have it come back negative and go, oh, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine to move about the country. Um, that A probably is not a good use of PCR tests, which are not an infinite supply and cost quite a bit of money, uh, and, and B, might actually mislead you into engaging in more infectious behavior. I'm, I'm hoping, as you are, that that's what they were trying to st- say. But it kind of gets us back to this thing that we keep trying to talk about on Mondays. And I know your time is limited, so I'll just get to this really fast, which is, you know, that's a diagnostic test. What you really need are screening tests that are considerably less expensive and that somebody who maybe went to that Friday night party could at home or in some, you know, pretty easy to access setting, um, do, do a test three or four times, you know, just to make absolutely sure three or four times out over a period of days, just so you don't miss the mark of when you're shedding virus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this has been an increasing topic of conversation in that while the PCR is very helpful, it is also very sensitive and it's this binary approach, either yes or no. And oftentimes we don't know, and that's been another conversation in terms of, is this person really still infectious? So more and more, it's important that we start looking at rapid diagnostics that people can do at home, have easy access to. And as you mentioned, affordability is huge. You know, we don't want price and um, having to go to an urgent care or a hospital to be a, a roadblock in access. And that's so concerning right now. So I'm hoping, and I know there's been a lot of push in you know, the coming weeks or months even, that we have more rapid diagnostics that allow people to get tested you know, f- frequently, you know, used for screening for schools, whatever it might be, for work, work environments. Um, and hopefully that will decrease our reliance on PCR and allow us to get a better understanding of what's really going on in the community. Yeah, it seems as though PCR, you know, the way that we're just describing it right now per Redfield is something that could easily be used too early and give a misleading uh, result, but also easily be used too late. And because it's so sensitive, so because it's so able to pick up when amplified fragments, you know, these protein fragments, uh, it also could give a positive result to somebody and probably does frequently give positive results to somebody who really isn't infectious anymore uh, and, and at the same time miss the people who are infectious. Yeah, and that's, that has been the concern with the um, CT levels or cycle thresholds. So there's been a lot of conversation about really lowering those. Um, you know, we're just making them, you know, so, so high to find the values. But ultimately, I think this really goes in terms of how can we better our testing approaches in the U.S. for diagnostics versus screening? And why are we still stuck on this, you know, very... Um, you know, what we're using right now, we can do better. And it's concerning that we're still stuck on it because what also worries me is people being able to get tested. I have, you know, friends who have children that were exposed and their pediatricians say, you know, we're really not going to test them unless they have severe disease. And I feel like that's just so concerning. I mean, obviously we want them to isolate as if they're sick, but, you know, having access to a rapid diagnostic at home would be very, very helpful in those situations. 
All right. So we promised we would get you out in time for your 1.30 meeting. And so even though there's lots of other stuff I'd like to talk to you about, <laughs> uh, we're going to do that. Saskia Popescu, uh, infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Arizona. Always great to have on the show. Actually does know a lot about it, unlike Scott Atlas. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll come back some other time. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with, yes, Gail Collins, who... We're fairly certain. Historians historians say she appeared on the first ever episode of the Colin McEnroe Show. Okay, we're getting ready to talk to Gail Collins, op-ed columnist for The New York Times and the author of When Everything Changed, The Amazing Journey of American Women from 1960 to the Present and most recently, No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. Um, so before I welcome Gail aboard, since we've just been through uh, two national conventions, I will quickly tell a story, which I'm pretty sure Gail doesn't remember, which is in 2000 in Los Angeles. We were having dinner in Los Angeles or somewhere near Los Angeles. I think it was me and Gail and Bill Curry and Margaret Carlson, and I don't know who else. And Gail had a an invitation to the Playboy Mansion that night for some kind of campaign event. This is common that there'll be things like this. Gail, being Gail, being a sensible person, had no interest in doing this. So I took it off her hands because I thought, well, I've never been to the Playboy Mansion. This will be my only chance. And so I go there. And I get waved through all these checkpoints. And each time the person puts a cop or something, puts a flashlight up on my invitation, goes, okay, Mr. Collins, go right on through. And then I got there and it was the most horrible thing in the world. It was terrible. It was one of those things you wanted to be out of, you know, 10 minutes in, even if you were able to go that long. So this is further proof that Gail Collins has more common sense than I did, did because she knew that without having to go. With no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our show, Gail Collins. Hi. Hey, how you doing? You probably don't even remember giving me your Playboy Mansion invitation. You know, now that I rem I do remember it, but I don't remember the, the end product of it no. was so terrible. I'm sorry, I missed that part. Right. No, that that would have involved you listening to me whine the next time. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we have been through uh, two conventions and I'm noticing that up on the New York Times website right now, one of your conversations, one of your back and forths with more conservative columnist Brett Stevens, you are talking about the impact of the uh, of the conventions. He's he's kind of making the case. I mean, I think we all see conventions through our own goggles. And so Stevens is making the case that, you know, maybe Joe Biden should be a little bit worried uh, about the effectiveness, effectiveness of some of the imaging and scapegoating and enemy identifying that went on in the Republican National Convention. What's your response or take on that? Uh, he's really smart, Brett Stevens, about everything, but, but I trust him a lot on the way conservatives think about stuff because he's a Trump-hating conservative, but he has all the other feelings, you know, about, you know, concerns about democratic policies and so on. And um, I, you know, I still, I don't think, I still don't think conventions make that much difference. It's just like two days, people talk about it all the time, and then we just go back to our lives. But 
if it's true that they do make a lot of difference, then maybe Trump scored a couple of points. I'm just not convinced. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think conventions don't make any difference except when they do. Uh, I would argue, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a fairly unassailable statement on my part. But um, no, I mean, for example, after Obama's speech in 2004, the entire... I know the chemistry of the Democratic Party, I think, shifted pretty radically. There was a sense in which, you know, this relatively unknown senator from Illinois had gotten up and spoken in a way that other people hadn't effectively spoken. And things were going to be kind of different uh, as a result. I mean, I think that's a rare occurrence. You know, it really has to be something like that. Otherwise, I would agree with you and in the sense that mostly what conventions do is kind of harden the cement that the party is already sitting in anyway. Yeah, I can't think that there was anything that happened in that convention that sent people wandering off saying, oh, my God, a new superstar or, wow, what a great speech or, oh, my Lord, Mike Pence is going to be a great successor. It just didn't happen. Right. So since you uh, mentioned uh, Mike Pence. One of your favorites, I think, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) you know. Whenever I think about, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, yeah, I always think it, the subtitle of The Handmaid's Tale should be, or as Mike Pence calls it, My Plan. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so, yeah, you actually you wrote about Mike Pence, about running mates in, in general. Uh, I think you and I have similar feelings uh, about r- running mates. But, uh, but yeah, Mike Pence, of course, predictably, he got a little chance to be showcased at the convention. Uh, did we get anything out of that? Well, you know, one thing about Mike Pence, this is sort of an insider journalism story that you'll appreciate. I think other people can understand anyway. But I had a deadline. I was writing a column the night that Mike Pence spoke, and he was not speaking until way past our first print deadline. So I wrote a column about sort of the history of vice presidents and funny things I knew about them, expecting then when Pence started talking to start subbing things out to make it more current and I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and <laughs> finally one of my editors wrote back and said look I don't think there's going to be anything quotable here just let it go as it is and that's what happened right so one of the rules of conventions also I mean this rule just may exist everywhere now but it used to not be but one of the rules of conventions is you can say stuff that's not true at conventions and although the press may try to catch up with it and everything like that they're they're going to have trouble doing that so here's uh mike pence uh talking at the convention about the coronavirus response before the first case of the coronavirus spread within the united states the president took unprecedented action and suspended all travel from China, the second largest economy in the world. Now that action saved untold American lives. And I can tell you firsthand, it bought us invaluable time to launch the greatest national mobilization since World War II. President Trump marshaled the full resources of our federal government from the outset. He directed us to forge a seamless partnership with governors across America in both political parties. So, I don't know. I, I have what a whopper, you're thinking, right? What a whopper, whoa. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think conventions, and I, I sort of wonder about whether the virtual convention that we saw is different. One thing about conventions is, I mean, first of all, you're the vice president, so it's your job to get up there and, and maybe tell whoppers uh, about your boss and make him look better than he otherwise would. And, you know, at a regular convention, you do that in front of 15, 20, 30,000 people, and they're all screaming their heads off uh, with excitement and approval of what you're saying, even if it isn't true. I, I sort of wonder about things like this, where, I mean, there's nobody like that. You know, there's like the journalists watching this convention may, may be close in number to the people watching this, con <laughs> this convention. And we're all fact checking it and, you know, and going tisk tisk. I, I think this might be an example on your side of the ledger that it just doesn't make any difference what gets said there. Yeah, I mean, everybody, the idea that anybody in the Trump administration would come out and say, well, we could have done better. You know, we should have thought about this this way. Gosh, it's just never going to happen. And the, on the other hand, the fact that they lie about stuff is so common now that it just doesn't make much of a, a, a wave at all. Another day and they told another lie. Right. You know, I mean, thinking about that whole history of running mates, and one thing I should say is that among American political columnists, uh, Gail is one of the most history-minded and writes a lot of books about the history of all this. Even in the modern history of it, it seems to me that, you know, running mates, they could do one of two things. When you have a highly vivid candidate like Trump, who's just making news all the time, then you kind of have this kind of Derwood Kirby-like sidekick, you know, who who <laughs> kind of, this is, boy, talk about a reference that 1% of the audience will get. But, um, but, you know, this kind of boring, phlegmatic kind of guy, that's probably a pretty good idea. Seems to more or less live in reality. Yes, a kind of Christian nationalist reality, but still reality. Um or if you're, say, Bush 41 and you're maybe not that exciting a guy, you wind up with a running mate like Dan Quayle, another Indianan, who, you know, in his own, he's sort of your Trump in a way. He's making all kinds of huge mistakes and getting a lot of attention called to himself uh, in a way that you are. More cheerful and, Trump, actually. Cheerful and Trump. I'd yeah. rather hang out with Dan Quayle to tell you the truth. But yeah. There you go. But it's, it is, I, I think. You know, not to have everything end with, well, it doesn't really make any difference. But I have a hard time. I, you know, I think Harris may be a really effective running mate for Biden in a lot of ways. And in, and in the way that Palin was important because McCain was old and had a lot of health problems, you know, so you really could yeah. possibly imagine this person becoming president. I think with Harris, they really needed somebody who, you know, looked like. Uh, who seemed like a, a highly functioning, believable president. That's like the most important thing for a vice president to be anyway, <laughs> but we hardly ever think about it. But I think on that basis, you know, she looks like a really drivable car coming off the lot. Yeah, she, and she, I was surprised, I must admit. I mean, I, you know, met her and run into her and, and, and I've been impressed by some of the things she did, but the way the country responded to it was really kind of amazing. Maybe it's because Joe Biden is just not exciting. And so it was easier for her to steal the spotlight, whether she tried to or not. But the, and you don't get that kind of a vice presidential reaction. Very often. You certainly didn't get it when Barack Obama announced that Joe Biden was going to be his vice president. Right. I, I, I do think that there was there was a way in which America was saying, 
I, I don't know why I keep thinking about cars, but don't show me like a Tesla because I don't really know what a Tesla is and whether they're good or not, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and don't show me a Yugo and don't show me, show me a car that I know if I had it, you know, I, it would be really dependable and it would work and I yep. would be able to get to my destination and it wouldn't burst into flames when it got rear-ended <laughs> or suddenly accelerate for no reason. Sounds or, like a good car to me, yeah, really. Yeah, and, and that's, that's kind of what she is, right? She's this car. She looks like, oh, yeah, you, if, if she were president, she'd be a discernible, competent president who didn't have these giant intellectual deficits. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't I mean, I didn't. She ran when she ran herself for president, frankly, a really bad campaign. It just wasn't well organized. Her message didn't get across. You know, I just she seemed a little you know weak on some issues all the time. But she really figured out how to transform herself and she's a whole different person now. And that's sort of what you want in a top ranked politician, somebody who will evolve into somebody better as these new challenges come along. So we should also talk a little bit about Melania, Melania maybe benefiting from, you know, kind of relative assessments uh, came off pretty well in her speech. She gave, she appeared to have some sympathy uh, for mm -hmm. people who are suffering under COVID-19 and also went so far as to say that there are moments in American history relating to race that we should not be proud of, which that can't possibly have been approved by anybody in the Trump <laughs> administration or the convention. But, but you're, this is something that you have quite a bit of expertise about. There's no way to have a conversation about First Ladies with Gail, Gail Collins without having Sarah Childress Polk come up. I don't know why that is, but we'll probably <laughs> be mentioning her at some point. So, yeah, give us, I don't know, where, where as, as we look at these two, I think, very different First Ladies slash potential First Ladies, what are your thoughts here? Oh, between between um, Jill and Melania. Yeah, let's see. Wow, it's hard to even think about, isn't it? I mean, it's just Jill is Jill is Jill's an educator, and Melania Melania Trump is a person who knows how to protect herself. Mm -hmm. If you read like some of the new books that are coming out about her, the his her history, uh, it, it's nothing. Im you know, inspiring. She didn't do much of anything for the public or for the common good or anything, but she did know from a very early period in her life how to sort of take care of herself, make sure that nothing bad was going to happen to her, that she was in the right place at the right time to move along. So um, I couldn't imagine her giving a speech about, you know, her education projects, but you, you can, you know, of all the things that drive me crazy about Donald Trump, I must admit that she's not one of them. She seems to me, for what the job she's got, she's, you know, popping along at it. Could be worse. We yeah, and I, I think at the Democratic National Convention, I mean, so much effort was being put into portraying Joe Biden as a really nice regular guy who's nice to like elevator, like really nice to elevator operators yeah, yeah. and people like that. And then Very I think nice also <laughs> a lot of effort was also put into portraying Jill Biden as a person who lives in the world that the rest of us live in. I mean, one of the things that we know about Melania Trump, however we feel about her, her existence seems to take place in this kind of rarefied and kind of hide off, uh, hived off world of glamorous uh, people and wealthy people. So yeah, you're not going to run into her in the supermarket anytime soon. I can no. guarantee you that. And if you and if so, she's not going to have coupons. 
Um, <laughs> but there was this kind of sense that they really worked hard and, and they did that kind of walk and talk through the school with Jill Biden. I, I will say the only thing that I think they almost went too far. You know, like she's like just such a regular person. She does stuff like regular people will do. Like if she's out jogging and she finds a dead snake, she'll bring it home and scare somebody with it. <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe that's a little more regular than I want the first lady. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that was on the list of things you really wanted in a first lady. But still, um, it is interesting that, you know, what you try to bring out, and what you try to not bring out. And Jill Biden is you know, smart enough that she can fill whatever role you need to have. And yeah. uh, the interesting thing about Joe Biden is that I can't remember the last time we had a president whose strength was that everybody thought he was a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> but that's sort of where you are right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, that argument was sometimes made about W, you know, that he was a guy you could have a beer with or something. I, I think it sort of depended. The fact that he was a recovering alcoholic seemed like, Seemed to even undercut that idea. Yeah, you know, did, did I ever tell you my, my Joe Biden being nice story? No, I want to hear it. Okay, this was a while back, and he was just sort of running around with, it was way before the major movement, but, you know, maybe last year sometime. He was making a speech to a bunch of, I think, college, but maybe high school students. Anyway, they were very nice and cheery kids, and he's talking away. And he started on a riff about Donald Trump. And he said, if I was your age and Donald Trump was in my class, I would take him behind a barn and I would beat him up and I would just really whip the tar out of him. <laughs> so um, I wrote a column saying, well, you know, I understand where he's going with this, but it's not a good idea to talk about violence against a president, even if it's Donald Trump and you're going to be in high school. And I you know, filed it. And then the next it came out on a Saturday and I was home and the phone rang and they said that the vice president wanted to speak to me right away. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the end of He's going to yell at me for half an hour. And he got on and he said, Gail, I really want to thank you for showing me what a jerk I was. You were absolutely right. And thank you for pointing that out. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sure he had other things, too. But the fact that he would do that, I can't think of another presidential candidate that I've known that would have done that right then. No, no. Well, maybe Mike Gravel or something, but you know, <laughs> not somebody really high ranking. All right. We're talking to Gail Collins. I should say one last thing about the Jill Biden thing, which is my feeling is if they get elected, they get in the White House. Angela Merkel already knows the dead snake thing is coming. All right. You know, if she's mm -hmm. visiting, they're probably not going to you know, be able to, to get her with that one. Uh, all right. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more of Gail after this. All right, so we're back with more Gail Collins. But first, let me thank people like Kat Pastor, who's there in the studio, making everything sound great and making it possible for me to work remotely, and for Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this episode, also to work remotely. Thanks to you too, Betsy Kaplan, for doing that. Uh, tomorrow, we're actually going to re-air a show that I actually think is very appropriate right now about placebos, stuff that you would not believe about. There's like placebo surgery. Um, 
Anyway, we'll explain all of that stuff to you. And we got all kinds of other exciting things happening this week, too. But right now, exciting enough, we've got Gail Collins, op-ed columnist for The New York Times, the author of When Everything Changed, The Amazing Journey of American Women from 1960 to the Present, and most recently, No Stopping Us Now, Adventures of Older Women in American History. Um, speaking of which, I think we have, it, Betsy Kaplan, do we have Curtis Sittenfeld on this week? Is she coming on to talk about Rodham? I'm I'm most of the way through Rodham, and I'm kind of enjoying it. All right, so at some point this week, Curtis Sittenfeld will be on with her fictional non. She doesn't get married to Bill, and other and it changes the course of history. Uh, novel called Rodham. Gail Collins, have you read that one yet? No, I haven't, but it's an interesting thought. You do wonder where. I have no idea where Hillary Clinton would have wound up if she hadn't married Bill. I mean, she might have. I could sort of see her as being like the chief. Judiciary Committee lawyer organizing things for the outside world. I'm not sure I can imagine her having become a political person, a candidate, certainly not a presidential candidate if she hadn't had that that connection. Right. Well, anyway, it's, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I do feel... <laughs> How does it like, work out, Till, is it? Well, I mean, it's certainly at a certain point she is running for president um, in this novel. The, uh, I mean, it's the, one of the problems with the novel, I think, is, and this is a horrible thing to say because it's like the story of her life, when Bill Clinton kind of drops out of the story, when she decides she's not going to marry this guy because he has, you know, a pathology, uh, and the novel gets somewhat less interesting <laughs> without him there as a character, which, of course, is, you know, well, anyway, I don't need to put a dot on that. So another thing I wanted to ask you, I'm guessing you have never seen a Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy movie called Bowfinger? No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay, I'm going to set you up. Goldfinger or not Goldfinger? No, it's, Bo, it's B-O-W, Bowfinger. So Steve Bowfinger. Martin plays this down-on-his-luck and somewhat discredited director who doesn't have any money. And Eddie Murphy plays this guy who is like the reigning action star of his day. And so Steve Martin figures out the way that he can make a movie that has this you know, incredibly high box office and therefore a very expensive actor in it is to just film him when he doesn't know it. So they kind of follow him around and they confront him with situations that he reacts to and they're just filming the whole time and that's kind of how they're going to get him uh, into this movie. And I started thinking that maybe the Republican convention was the Bowfinger convention because the New York Times did a page one story over the weekend about how these New York City tenants were tricked into appearing in a video that turned out to be part of the RNC video. They thought they were just sort of talking uh, to the head of federal housing programs in New York uh, about their problems. They didn't realize well, they were going to be. Well, true, but if you're like a tenant in, a, in a, a housing project in New York City, in your regular life, the chances that anybody who's interviewing you is going to be from the Trump campaign are very slender. So I can really see how they could have presumed something else was going on if they weren't carefully informed. And there you are. Right. And then it turns out that at that natural, that sort of slightly Potemkin village looking naturalization ceremony that took place also on screen during the convention, two of the five people being naturalized said that um, they were not aware that the video was going to be aired at the convention. Uh, and nobody told them that. And now Chad Wolf, the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, said he wasn't aware. <laughs> <laughs> that this video was going to be used at the Republican National Convention. So I sort of feel like they should be a little embarrassed, Gail. Like most conventions, you just sort of invite people to come on. <laughs> well, first of all, the idea that Chad Wolf does not know what's going on is not a big, no matter what the story is, hmm. a big piece of excitement or unusualness. But And, and these poor people, like, you know, 
that the word is, and now that they're citizens, they can be aware of this, anything that Donald Trump does is going to be done for the media one way or the other. So don't let him get near you unless you're prepared to be used whatever way he wants. So, um, yeah, I just sort of thought, you know, what you couldn't get enough guests that you just sort of invited them. I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of people like Susan Collins and Mitt Romney who aren't going to speak at the convention and aren't going to be asked. But like having to trick people to be in your convention, <laughs> I feel like you should feel kind of bad about that. that you... <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it exactly that way, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. you would think they could find their own people, their own right. happy citizens or whatever. But that's the world of Donald Trump. You know, right. He just doesn't presumes that everybody else wants to be with him and wants to do what he wants to do. And that's the way he runs the government, too. You know? The Democrats found 50 or 51 or a how No, they had like Samoa, too. They had like a lot. Of, they found a lot of people to I stand really there. I that thing, didn't you? They that was my favorite thing. Yes. I'd watch it again, you know. It and it was sure. so surprising that Donald Trump's people, who are supposed to be geniuses in, in, in media strategy and in knowing how to entertain, couldn't think of anything to do that was even interesting. It was a very boring convention. Right. I mean, one thing that you and I both know is that roll calls are really boring at a convention. Oh, God, like yes. I mean, unless we're <laughs> it's, unless it's nineteen sixty eight or something. So, but this was like I, I really would watch that whole thing again. It made me feel good about America. It made me wish I was traveling again. You know, it was just so. Yes, I hope they keep that even if they go back to live conventions. That's just a terrific idea. So, I, I before we run out of time, I have to. Because, in fact, we share a, a common history. There's a way in which, Gail, I think there are people who we will never be rid of. There will never be a day, as you know and I know, where we think, well, Joe Lieberman is never going to be in the news again. You, know? <laughs> you are That's, so right. Yeah. Oh, my Lord, yes. But, but, but now it's like Chris Dodd, too. Were you surprised? Did you think maybe you'd written your last thing? about Chris Dodd. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can, that, well, that's the interesting thing about Chris Dodd. You can go for three years without thinking a single thought about Chris Dodd, and then suddenly out of nowhere, he pops up because he knows lots of important people and he hangs out a lot. So, you know, good for him. I right. think he did a good job. What the hey? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, one thing, the reason that that happens is that we may not be thinking about Chris Dodd, but Chris Dodd is thinking about Chris Dodd so, <laughs> sooner or later. But yeah, on the other hand, I thought he managed to send a signal for a while that Biden was out of step, was maybe not going to take Harris because she was insufficiently contrite about the way that she about her fisticuffs with Biden during the convention. I mean, for a while I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Don't talk to Chris Dodd. He does not understand the moment we're <laughs> well, living. You remember, we all remember when Chris Dodd was trying to run for president, he moved to Iowa. Right. And he put his kids in school in Iowa. He was, he, and he didn't get any votes even then. Yeah. It was sort of the Marlon Brando method actor approach to running for president. You know, <laughs> you really sort of become the role, you know, even if you're, you're, you're not going to get those votes. Well, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is something that I think we're all very nervous about, which is that notion that, you know, when the election is over and the votes are counted, it could be very possible that President Trump lacks the requisite electoral votes and that Biden has them. But somehow or other, President Trump just announces that he can't possibly have lost because he never loses and he's therefore not leaving. So I don't know, as journalists, is there anything we can do to prepare for this eventuality? 
Well, I can't tell you how often people talk about it and how much people worry about it. And I guess one thing that everybody's been doing that may be helpful is to continually interview military guys and other, you know, guys who would have some power points like that to say, well, that's not going to happen, right? If he tries to do that, the military or the Justice Department or somebody will jump in there and, and make him stop. But you can imagine if it was close, just an endless kind of ongoing thing. To, that, that's the most scary part of all, just having six months in which he refuses to leave the White House and that's all we talk about. And it'll be good stories though, Colin. You'll be doing a lot of programming. Oh yeah, no. I'll, I, I My theory is that we should just People should just get in the habit of asking him to leave wherever he is, you know, just so he learns. And so I'm sorry, we need this table for another Arby's customer. You have to leave now, you know, and he sort of kind of learns to do that. But I also I have no support for what I'm about to say. And you only have about 60 seconds to respond to it. But I have this theory that he doesn't like being president that much anyway. And he's constantly being sued and assailed from all corners. If he could leave without being the loser, I think he'd take that deal. That's a good thought? thought. And, you know, another thought about him is he's not a brave guy. Yeah. He, if he gets caught in one of those things where he's standing up against the country and there's this outcry and the military is looking, he, it's hard for me to imagine him pushing forward with something like that just because he's not he hasn't got that kind of spine, really. Yeah, I think if we could just make up this huge trophy that says this is to certify that Donald Trump did not lose the 2020 presidential election. Although I love will... the way you think. That's absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah. Although he will not continue to serve as president. This is his trophy. He didn't lose. <laughs> He's not a loser. Uh, maybe we just get away. We, we would get out of it that way. Well, no matter what happens, we will have Gail Collins to write for us and give us uh, some sanity and some very funny insanity. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So that's it for today. Uh, I do encourage you to buy all Gail Collins books, ideally at an independent bookseller. But, you know, I'm not the kind of control freak where I'm going to tell you where to buy your books. Uh, I'm a different kind of control freak. All right. Well, thanks to everybody who listened today. This was fun, except when the pandemic stuff is never all that much fun. But uh, we'll be back with the Placebo Show tomorrow and other shows this week, including, including Thursday, Curtis Sittenfeld, the author, as well. you